This is essential. 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 This is essential audio. Hello, and welcome to the Money Pot, the podcast from Money 2020. I'm editor in chief Sanjeev Kalita, and I'm joined here by Rachel Morrissey, content producer at Money 2020 USA. And you're listening to a bonus episode of the show. Yes, as promised, we're discussing some of the key issues around. The GameStop short. Of course, there's been countless conjecture and opinions shared across all the media outlets on this in the past week or so. However, this is a podcast about the fintech industry for the fintech industry. And so, what we wanted to do was to come at this discussion from the fintech perspective, finding out how this situation came to be and how to approach a similar situation if it happens again. Which is why I'm really glad to be joined by you, Sanjeev, as you have plenty of experience as an entrepreneur and have been involved in a good number of startups in your time. So hopefully you can give us an understanding of what might have been going on behind the scenes in this kind of situation. Well, we can speculate forever about what actually happened in the Robinhood Zoom calls over the past couple of weeks. But what I will say is that this is still a very fast-moving situation as Robinhood and the wider industry reacts to the fallout and there's a lot of nuance here. But what we're hoping to do is give a broad understanding of some of the factors which contributed to this situation and some questions that the industry is going to have to grapple with in the weeks and months ahead. Great. So let's get to this. So we're going to start right in the middle of it, which is the squeeze. This was a short squeeze, but done by a crowd. Now, usually you don't see a short squeeze in the market. You don't, you don't see anything like this done by a large group of retail investors. This is a completely different kind of scenario. You've seen short squeezes done by professional investors or hedge fund versus hedge fund. But how many times do you really see a group of retail investors come together like this? Yeah, th- th- this has definitely never happened before. And, and as you mentioned, like, you know, that even within sort of the professional investors, like different hedge funds, they might be rivals with each other and they might try to undercut each other. But, um, you know, you sort of have a general sense of wh- wh- how much capital they might have or when they might do it. Or th- there's sort of a, a, a some boundaries around it. But like, as you mentioned, this was done by the crowd and the boundaries that might have been used to evaluate past situations what weren't there this time. Right, because, I mean, you, you have no idea how many resources they have. The, the, the crowd could become endless. And, and then also, this is an interesting thing. Like, there was a discussion last Saturday um, on Clubhouse, and it was between uh, Vlad and um, the, the guys at Robin Hood, and Mark Andreessen was there, Ben Horowitz was there. There were a lot of big Silicon Valley players there. One of the ones points that Mark Andreessen made was that this uh, felt like the, the beginning of a new phase of the internet. I uh, said the first phase of the internet was you know, everybody getting a website. And the second phase of the internet is really when money came into it and you could buy stuff. But the third phase of the internet is when it's been democratized enough that people can use money uh, the same way that bigger groups do. And and he's, he compared it to the idea of a Kickstarter, meaning a crowdfund, but 
a, a crowdfunding investment, which I think is sort of hard to kind of understand exactly how that would uh, ever be formalized. Like, is there any way to kind of predict this kind of thing? Yeah, no, and I think that that's an interesting point you bring up. And to restate, like, the three um, phases that I think Andreessen mentioned was, first was just having connectivity, and there really weren't any business models up there. The second was when you're looking at eyeballs and you're monetizing through advertising. And third uh, is when actual, you know, hard money gets transferred in. It's just not eyeballs. And when you get to that point, there's a lot more interest. That there's a lot more um, like per- peripheral damage, if you will. And that's that's what they're saying. I mean, this is the face, the true face of people voting with their wallets, which is the democratization of finance. Which is interesting because that was exactly what Robin Hood said it wanted to do, and has always put forth the idea that they were democratizing investing. And, you know, on that Clubhouse chat, Vlad, the the CEO of Robin Hood, he was talking about why he wanted to start something like Robin Hood. And he mentioned that he came from Bulgaria as a a child to America and that his parents were sending money back to his grandparents. And at that time in Bulgaria, I happened to have been there and the situation was severe inflation. So they got their paycheck and it was worth almost nothing by the next day because they had inflation that was, it was so bad. I mean, even when I lived there, the the exchange rate went from 60 leva to a dollar to 125 leva to a dollar. A few weeks after I left, it was thousands of leva to a dollar. So the money just became worthless. Um, and his idea was that if they could have put that money into investments, they would have been able to hold the value of it in a way that would was more stable, that, that actually allowed them to grow wealth. And that's sort of the aim of democratization of, of investing. But there there's other issues with it. Yeah, I, th- I think the democratization point is, is so key because um, as an entrepreneur, you know, you, you you rally around something that is very, it, it's like a big idea, something that is um, has the potential to make a big impact on the world, and democratization of finance is is definitely something like that. But when you are building something, when you're, you know, if, a, a few folks in in a room trying to you know, invent something, um, it's it's hard to. Think about like some something like this GameStop scenario happening, and I'm I guarantee that when um, when they, they were in that room, you know, however many years ago, you're almost like I I I hope I have this problem, but but the thing is that like so many entrepreneurs, they're taken down by when things are really good because they became too good. When when God wants to curse you, He gives you what you ask for. <laughs> exactly, that's that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> Oh, well, and, and this is sort of interesting because part of what led to this is the Robinhood app itself, as you said, you know, it really made investing available to a lot of people who hadn't been in the markets before. But it, it, it's gotten a lot of criticism because it has a gamification element to it where it treats investing a little bit like gambling. 
um, which she can be like gambling. Um, but the gamification element can also be considered addictive. And there has been a worry and a lot of criticism aimed at Robin Hood over the years. This is not since the GameStop thing, although they've jumped on this a little bit. About the idea that gamification and getting people engaged no matter what is irresponsible, especially for younger people. Um, so what what would you say to that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think that it's sort of interesting to think about needing to gamify investment because like when you look at other industries, like for example, like loyalty points or... Uh, retail or what, what have you. The example that you, they will use is like, we, we want to make our experience like investing and being like a financial market. And so so it's a little uh, weird for me to think about needing to gamify something that, you know, has been used as the definition of gamification. That, 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 <laughs> I know, it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, 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 it's, it's like... It's like if uh, Smokey the Bear had a teddy bear as well, too. It's like a little bit of overkill. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's interesting, though. Uh, I have friends who use Robin Hood, um, and they didn't. They had no experience with investing when they started. And one of the reasons they liked it is they feel like they've learned a lot about investing by being on Robin Hood and participating in it because it is gamified. Like the fact that it's gamified has actually increased their understanding of the markets. They, it, it's been kind of a piece of financial literacy, which we've always talked about using gamification to help educate as well. And so it's kind of ironic that this, this thing that could be dangerous, this element that could be dangerous is also an element that can be helpful. And it's hard to control that and know what to do with that. If I were to say that Robin Hood worked on this perfectly. Yeah, that would be a joke. Everybody knows that Robin Hood made some mistakes here. I don't I think they're one of their big mistakes was not understanding early enough the risk that they were taking on and the way that the clearinghouse was going to raise their capital needs in order to cover this huge amount of activity that was going on on their app and you kind of wonder why why they didn't move on that faster or if they did move on that faster do you do you think they moved on that immediately and they it just took as long as it did or do you think they just didn't see it coming my, my guess is that they did not see this coming like like much of the last year it's like it's like a black swan <laughs> we've seen a lot of black swan <laughs> events this year and, and you know it, it's sort of like once again like you're like, oh, in my wildest dreams, I hope I get a lot of people investing on my platform. And then when you actually get it, you're like, oh, wow, I did not, <laughs> I did not, <laughs> I did not expect that. And and then so at that point, you're literally scrambling to that end. Like you, you, you make uh, trade-offs in design to, to get speed, uh, to be able to get new customers as quickly as possible, to um, develop a a seamless user experience and because of those trade-offs like you might not have as strict you, you know you don't have as many speed bumps in terms of like compliance or in terms of like waiting for trades to clear so the, I, I think that a lot of those trade-offs it's almost like they they, they, they added up at the, the worst possible time for them yeah and and while they were under that stress of everything adding up at the worst possible time they had to deal with the pr fallout uh and they did not handle that well. 
I, I'm just going to say, as somebody who works in communications all the time, that I do not think they handled that well. And I read something that was very interesting where they said that one of the reasons they didn't handle it well is they don't have a history of making content, right? So not having a content-forward culture hampered their ability to really know how to communicate with their customers and know what to tell their customers that it led to the idea that there was a lack of transparency. They sent out an email to their customers on Saturday talking about how they were going to stop uh, or limit the amount of trading that could happen. Then they let that sit until Monday. Monday, they tweeted out an explanation of what happened and how they got the capital and what they were doing. But all of this started on Friday. So for four days, they let a narrative take place on the internet about them being at the beck and call of their VCs and being beholden to the hedge funds. And none of that turns out to have been the reality, but that narrative has taken hold. And I think it's going to be very difficult to get that narrative out of people's heads. I think it's going to be very difficult, especially with the the lawsuits that are coming their way. I think those lawsuits are directly related to how badly they handled the communications. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think at, at some point, you know, it's like perception becomes reality, even in fact, if it's not reality. Right. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the fallout. Do we think any kind of restrictions are going to be put in place in the market? And if there aren't, what could stop this from happening again? I, I mean, if, if anything, like uh, the, the, the SEC has been issuing a lot of rules about like marketing of and, and trying to modernize the rules of marketing uh, f- financial services. And, and, and so I, I think I, I don't. I, I don't see anything happening in direct response to this in, in the near in the near term. Me either. I, and I don't really don't think there is anything to stop this from happening again. Uh, I, I do think that everybody's going to be paying a lot more attention to Wall Street bets on Reddit. But I don't. I don't think there is anything that's going to stop this from happening again. If if they can get this kind of momentum in the crowd again, we don't talk very much about the Reddit ones, and I I think there's a who's participating in those because we we found that there are kind of three different types of people in this Wall Street bets subreddit and one of the, one group of people was really doing their homework and they were talking about this for a couple of months and, and putting this forward to the Wall Street Bets group for a couple of months. And another group was kind of along for the ride. You know, they thought, ooh, this is fun. I'm going to go ahead and get in on this, you know, be a hot shot. But there was a third group that was definitely trying to stick it to the hedge funds and uh, were, were accepting the losses uh, and and just felt like, I'm going to participate in this specifically to uh, as a retaliation and particularly for what was what happened in 2008 with the financial markets. There's a lot of uh, unresolved resentment out there amongst this crowd. And I don't think that's a, a lone thing. And I think it speaks to we in the financial services industry, we still have to build up a lot of trust with the general public. Absolutely. And and I think if, if I take it back to, you know, 2008 to the financial crisis, you know, what 
the general population learned is that you know that the professionals who were smarter, who had dotted their I's and crossed their T's more so than anyone else, and we learned that that in fact was not the case, and that opened up the opportunity for fintechs, you know, new companies with new brands. Um, and maybe not necessarily run by the people in the three-piece suits, it, it opened up the opportunity for everyday people to put their money into these fintech startups. And I actually think that, you know, similarly, you, you know, it, it's traditionally been thought of as that, okay, I, I have to invest my money into something that is secure, something that is safe, and that is equities, that is, you know, traditional stocks, that's something that's sold on the big markets. But in fact, what we're seeing is that th th this is a bit of uh, the Wild West as well, too. And so why not look at things like digital assets? Why not look at things like cryptocurrencies? Why not look at things that have not fallen into these traditional buckets in the past. So I, I, I actually think that, what, that that's going to be one of the outcomes that we, we might actually see more money going in toward, towards like the crypto side of things. I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that we're already seeing that with the way the crypto markets are, are working. And, and, and then, like you said, like they found out that it, if the emperor had no clothes... <laughs> He might, he might, he might still have some clothes, but he's definitely stripped down to his underwear. The mystery and the the reverence for that three piece suit is not where it once was. Well, these are all topics which will play out across our industry over the next months and years, and so I'm sure we will be coming back to this narrative again on this show. But in the meantime, that's all we have for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to our producer, Roland Boddenham, for editing together our rambling conversations to make us sound smart and erudite. And if you like what you heard today, please make sure you're subscribed to the show on whatever platform you listen. And please do leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. Thank you so much for listening. This is essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.